Welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. We're here today with Matthew Barnes. He's the owner of Momenta Media and partner and chief solutions officer and virtual reality lead at Seesaw Labs. I'm your host, Bob Rourke, and today on Business Leaders Podcast, where we interview some of the best and brightest business owners and entrepreneurs in and around the state of Colorado. We talk about the ins and outs of running a business and being an entrepreneur. Insights shared by the top business leaders and entrepreneurs in the state of Colorado. We talk about what to do and, as importantly, what not to do about growing, running, or starting a business. And on the show today, we're incredibly fortunate to have Matthew Barnes. Matthew, welcome. Thank you. Matthew, tell us a little bit about how you got started in your business a little bit. Uh, So... So going way back, my background is actually in engineering, uh, formerly educated as a civil engineer. Uh, partway through that, realized that what I really love was problem solving, uh, not necessarily civil, civil engineering. So uh, I got started in the, the startup entrepreneurship kind of uh, world pretty early on in, in college, uh, realizing that that was going to be my, my out, right? Uh, I really liked... Uh, Diving into things that that were were complicated that maybe I didn't know a lot about, and just getting up to speed and and trying to to work in that that kind of realm. And technology is very attractive because uh, the barrier to entry is so low, right? So uh, you need a computer and the internet basically to to start getting your hands dirty. And so uh, while I was at, at university, I, I actually was doing um, seismic design, so earthquake engineering, uh, while uh, moonlighting, uh, running a, an apparel company. Well, those are. <laughs> Just the same. Exactly the same. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, getting my my uh, my feet wet in e-commerce, and uh, eventually went on to to then drop out of grad school to to run that e-commerce company um, for that startup, and and kind of built from the ground up uh, their whole platform as far as marketing and advertising, and and the e-commerce website, the the whole nine yards. Also did apparel design, and did that for about three and a half years, and then went on to uh, a company called Moose Jaw Mountaineering. Um, which, if you're in the the outdoor uh, space, you you may know it's a little bit like like REI. I did all the analytics and split testing there, so really diving into that that kind of marketing aspect and understanding how users interact and behave with with piece of technology. Um, and I find that uh, that that sort of thing is a, one of the most interesting problems for me because it kind of goes beyond um, just the basic kind of problem solving, now you're getting someone to do something that, that you anticipate you want them to do, right? And, and so kind of closing the feedback loop on that and testing hypothesis, very exciting thing. Uh, and all the while, so Momentum Media, which you which you mentioned, uh, is kind of the, the side hustle thing along the way where I was, uh, I couldn't, couldn't get enough of just the one thing I was doing, right? I wanted to uh, to also find other people who were having problems and say, I can, I can help you too. And a lot of times that started with uh, just personal connections and then moved on to uh, to getting connected with other people that had e-commerce businesses um, where I thought I could uh, could lend a hand and, and reshape things, building websites, just kind of teaching myself all of that. Uh, and then uh, now, now Seesaw Labs, um, which, which you mentioned. Um, so Seesaw Labs is like a digital production agency, which is just a vague enough term that it can encompass uh, almost anything, but just specific enough that you kind of get a, a little idea. Basically, the, the, the short version is if it's on a screen, um, we probably create it. And... Uh, what I try not to say is we don't, we don't build apps, we don't build websites. Um, that's that's this kind of like really discreet way of looking about technology. And uh, quite frankly, you can get just about anybody to to build something like that, right? Uh, people do it all the time. Ship a website out to, to India or whatever, um, get something built. Uh, and anybody who's done that probably knows that that's uh, not always the most effective way to to get the job done. 
No, uh, not. So, so, so uh, where we kind of focus is we really focus on, uh, we're not looking for projects, we're looking for partners. And so the, the reason I say it that way is that we've kind of uh, developed our process into these phases that come alongside a business and find out what's your pain point. Like, why do you think that you you want to build this thing? Or maybe you don't know what you want to build, right? You just have a problem and you know that that technology is probably the going to be the realm in which you have that solution, whether it's uh, getting customers in the door, which is the the way that everybody makes money, uh, or, or communicating your idea, or even making your business run more effectively, right? So a, a lot of things, even um, a quick example, uh, we, we partner with a company who uh, does textile recycling. Okay, so you wouldn't think, like, how the heck is textile recycling fit technology? Well, there's a fleet of drivers out there that need to go uh, collect from these bins, and that's not a, not a, a simple task when um, these bins uh, sometimes might be blocked or damaged or whatever, and uh, you also need to do estimating for what types of things you're picking up. So there's this whole kind of, like, complicated um, problem, and so we've developed a, a solution that just works on an iPad that they that they take around with them, uh, and it just... it simplifies dramatically all of the number crunching and, and accounting sort of things for a business like that. So our big thing is, is really partnering. So, so figuring out what that solution is. Uh, yes, we then do the, the execution phase, that build phase, but then it goes beyond that, right? Because, uh, great, I built you a thing. How do you know that it works? Um, we're really interested in that problem. That's a scary problem. I think that uh, uh, it is easy for, for people who are, who are maybe not... Uh, uh, not as confident or, or talented, right, to build you a thing and then hand it to you and then just walk away. Uh, but but our thing is really that um, that we want to help make sure we solve the problem or maybe the problem yeah. changes. Yeah. Let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned that on, on a prototypical client, mm-hmm. when they come through the door, there's a discrete process that you go through with them. Yes. You know, because I could come and say, I want a website. <laughs> yeah. And what I really mean is, I want a customer. So let's dig into that. I often try to avoid specifically saying the word website. Um, what we need is you need is a marketing site, right? Usually that's usually what it means. And it's, that sort of captures this thing of I need a customer. I need I need somebody to do something, right? Um, my, my pain point is I want somebody to engage with me. And so we'll we'll come along, uh, we'll come alongside and find out how do people find out who you are. What does a typical customer customer look like? What are they looking for? And so there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. So this initial prototype phase, um, so building something can be really daunting, right? Um, especially if the project is quite large. And so we come up with this kind of initial phase, which is an engagement that's much smaller. Um, we dive into analytics. Most people don't even, don't even have analytics, right? So if you say you want a new website, I'm going to wire up your old website and find out how are people using it. Um, so uh, an example that comes to mind is um, we just recently partnered with uh, with a company in Oklahoma. They had a website, and um, they technically had Google Analytics on it. It wasn't very granular. Uh, we spent an initial month with them analyzing the data coming out of that to find out like what are people what are people looking for when they when they come here how do they interact and and we found some really interesting stuff. We found uh, a lot of people were coming to the website because uh, they wanted a job. Um, because this was a, a company that was one of the best places to work in in Oklahoma. It was, and and they were getting a lot of traffic from from some sites that were that were mentioning them in, in news articles. And so uh, we talked through, you know, is is that something that's important to you? Do you really want? Do you, are you, your business is expanding? You wanna you wanna capture those people? And it's something that then then we could emphasize like in the next phase. And uh, a lot of times you'll have uh, where people they think they want one thing, um, but their their problem actually means that they need something else. So uh, there's another one, um, restore cryotherapy. So cryotherapy, if you're not familiar with it, yeah, for the guy, that's it's, right. It was called what was it called again? Cryo, cryotherapy. Restore cryotherapy is yeah. The restore cryotherapy. Cryotherapy is yeah. the, the service. <laughs> 
Which is, yeah, yeah I, I've seen as looks. You know, you see people they stand in the box and they get frozen. They don't stay there very long. That's right. They you stay come, there for a period of time. You come, you, you, it's not quite like coming out like Doctor Evil, like in Austin <laughs> Powers, but uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's you get very cold for a short period of time, and uh, this is very huge, kind of in the CrossFit kind of community, um, student athletes, anyone that's looking for for these recovery kind of aspects, and. Uh, you know, as, as probably many of the people listening uh, know very well, is as your business is growing, uh, you're not always doing things the most optimal way. You're just kind of kind of adding something on to, to help get you through the next day, week, hour, whatever it is. And uh, and they had sort of built up this this website that for um, so it became a franchise. And so for all their locations, there was just like one more thing tacked on, one more thing tacked on, and they were really outgrowing it. And so uh, we came alongside them and realized that. Uh, you know, what is, the, what is the purpose of the site? And a lot of it was um, they needed to get people in the door. And so as we did that kind of initial discovery phase, we found out that the, one of the ways that they were driving customers was through through Groupon. And so uh, for, for people that aren't familiar, Groupon has sort of changed their, their model for how they do payout. And so it was really hurting them. And uh, the other aspect that we discussed um, that they that they didn't uh, really consider is that um, there's a particular type of person that uses Groupon, right? And it's uh, it's usually I like to say uh, I'll try anything once, and that's not necessarily for for a business where you're looking for long time commitment. Uh, the the type of person that you're necessarily after. Um, so they wants a steep discount and to try it once. And so uh, what we have done then is before we even finished building their their new website, we built uh, a specific landing page and started experimenting with with advertising through AdWords, Facebook, Yelp, um, all, all of those kind of avenues and just really wired up those analytics because again, like it's the, the how do you know when it's working sort of thing and now we can get into uh, hypothesis testing, split testing on what's the video you show, what are the images that you use, how do you talk about the service uh, and so that's just an, another case of, of that initial phase actually being so much more important um, than, than you might think, and it's not something I think a lot of people do. Yeah, that's the diagnostic, really. That's right. You know, and so going going back to the cryotherapy folks, rest, mm-hmm. restore. Restore cryotherapy, yeah. that's right. For those guys, and so you guys went through, did the analytics, started doing some work, and basically retooled what they were doing. Mm-hmm. For them, as the customer, what type of feedback did you get from them after you went through that process? Yeah, so it's interesting. So the common thread that we usually get as far as feedback is uh, – how do we keep working together, right? Because they realize that um, there is so much kind of solutioning and strategy that's needed. And it's not something that usually is coming internally, especially when it has that heavy technology component. And so uh, we're sort of now an extension of, of them insofar as we're monitoring those analytics. We're monitoring those campaigns, making suggestions, helping them refine it. Um, we're even starting to engage in some other projects, right? Because they get really excited about some of the things we've done for other for their clients as we're continually engaging. And so um, they have another service they offer, uh, which is like drip therapy through like an IV. It takes a long time, very boring sort of thing. And so we're actually uh, uh, prototyping a virtual reality experience um, while, while people wait. Uh, and so... Uh, there's just a, a lot of different ways that we found that we can we can work together, and it's usually one of those things where we engage, thinking we're going to build a website. We end up doing a whole marketing campaign, getting into virtual reality. That's that's typically the the way things go um, once people just see how valuable that strategy component is. I've had this discussion for a number of folks. I'm that company. I've engaged you guys. You've done the site. How do I know that I got a return on my investment? What it, tells me exactly? So so we the the thing that is really important to us is that feedback loop. So so if you think about the three stages, we have that initial like assessment and prototype phase, 
The middle one's the one everybody uh, thinks that they want, right, which is the build phase where we make the thing. Uh, and then the, the third phase is ongoing kind of support and monitoring. And so uh, the way that you know that you get that return on investment is that we bake analytics immediately into everything that we do. So maybe you're not selling something directly on your website, right? You're trying to focus on email signups or something like that. So as much as we can kind of put the tentacles of analytics into your site and show that increased engagement, show that interaction, whatever it is that that, that piece of, uh, of software or that tool is trying to accomplish, we show that it's working. We show the direction it's going. And a lot of interesting things can come out of that. So so the example that the textile uh, recycling company is you might find that your drivers are doing things that you didn't actually anticipate that they do. You find that they have pain points that they that you didn't know that they had. Uh, if it's uh, your website, you might find that your users actually interact in a different way. Or uh, as, as everyone is familiar with, the, the landscape of technology is changing day to day, every single day. And so that means that if you build something today, tomorrow, it might be interacted with differently. And so, so we really try to try to focus on how do we capture that behavior so that we can learn and capitalize on it. You get a surge of traffic to your website because some new platform has opened up or someone wrote an article or whatever. How do you leverage that and how do we know when it works? That's really, really important step that I think gets missed. Uh, and Quite frankly, I think a lot of people that quote unquote like build things are really afraid of providing because uh, they're not that good, right? They're not they're not actually sure that their thing is going to work, and and uh, we want to try to be as honest about that as possible. Is that yeah, this is a hypothesis, and let's test it together. For what we're trying to do here, let's circle back real quick. If folks are going, wow, I, I need to find Matthew. Mm-hmm. How do they find you on social media? Yeah, so so seesaw seesaw labs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we are uh, currently on. Facebook and uh, and LinkedIn, and so uh, we're continually kind of expanding that as we're as we're getting more involved and doing more things that are uh, are playful that we can kind of surface. One of the things is that um, we deal a lot with with startups, and so not everything that we do we can kind of kind of surface. But the, some of the things like virtual reality that we're we're getting into um, these kind of like. Uh, very kind of hot technologies. Uh, that's stuff that it's very easy to share. That that we're kind of uh, that we're kind of getting into. So let's dig into the virtual reality space. How yeah, are you seeing that fit in with your clients or potential clients? Yeah. So so the interesting thing is that uh, virtual reality, kind of as as we've all noticed, is getting more and more accessible, like uh, every month, right? So now uh, all these phones are coming out that have. Uh, the capability baked right in, and so um, we're kind of past the the cardboard box in the face uh, stage, and and now we're getting into to the the Google uh, Daydream, right? Um, which is which has got like a little remote, and it's it's still your phone, and now uh, game systems like PlayStation, all that stuff. It's it's all coming coming together where it's becoming very very kind of uh, uh, accessible. And so uh, the first space that this is that this is really becoming powerful is is simply in marketing, right? Because you're able to deliver a more rich experience than anyone is has ever had before. Getting people to to interact with uh, with a product or or um, enrich an experience, like I was saying for the restore crowd therapy example, right? You take something that is that is actually kind of boring, um, and you you actually make it something that you look forward to, where you're going to to have this experience that you've not that you've not had before. Um, another kind of example of it is um, it has really interesting implications in like an architecture kind of space. So we have one one person that we're partnering with now who uh, they're looking to build a specific facility, okay? And so they're interacting with their investors and they're, they're, they're selling the dream, right? They're selling the story. And the component to that that we're building for them is we're actually building a virtual experience where 
uh, instead of it just being pictures on a on a PowerPoint or something like that, uh, they can come into this meeting with these with these these daydreams, right? Put it on the head of the investor, and that person can now look around inside of this this virtual building and see the potential and the scale and the magnitude of of what actually is going to be accomplished. Uh, and and that I think has really really powerful impacts because when you kind of go from that that flat two D version of something to actually feeling like you're in there and getting the sense of scale, it's magical. Absolutely magical. Have you done any testing on that to see how the the uptake rate is when you put it into a customer experience? So the interesting thing is that it is it is such a paradigm shift that it is really hard to find kind of like the apples to apples uh, that um, to compare it to. Uh, but but we have found that that in the experience that we've done, like the, the feedback is phenomenal. It goes from this thing where. Um, it's not something anyone expects, really, right? Everyone knows what it is, but they don't really expect it yet. And so, when you add that virtual reality component to to whatever your your campaign is, or your experience, or your meeting, or whatever that thing is, it's something that's just memorable, right? That that people come come away and like you're not going to forget um, that you put on the the virtual reality uh, device. Um, it's it's it very very interesting uh, in in that regard. We we talked um, before the show. And we were talking about another example that you were using, and it was with Countable. What I was intrigued about is mm-hmm. about the accountability capability that you guys were talking about doing at distance. So yes. let's dig into that case study a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So so Countable um, started as an idea, uh, as, as many great things do. And uh, it, was, it was a startup that we partnered with very early on. And their whole idea is that um, you, listeners may be uh, um, familiar with with micro loans, uh, and usually what the sort of thing is, is it's a loan uh, to somewhere far away, um, uh, another country like Rwanda or something like that, where uh, sometimes it's for like medical equipment or uh, or like coffee or something like that, right? Like uh, Starbucks has told me that they're going to buy X number of, of pounds of coffee for me roasted. Uh, I need to, to now go buy the coffee and the roasting equipment. Uh, to supply that, and I need a loan to do it. And traditionally, um, there's a lot of risk in that, right? It's a, it's a very distanced relationship. Um, there's not a lot of accountability. It's not easy to just phone someone up um, uh, in, in that regard. Um, so, so what Countable does is um, we've, we've partnered with them to build this platform that has, has uh, several different um, kind of components to it. But what it does is it, it, it tries to mitigate that risk by creating that accountability. So for the for the lendee, um, what they're doing is providing documentation, taking photographs. Um, there's a, sort of a schedule of how everything's going to happen. I'm going to pick up the equipment on Tuesday. It's going to be delivered um, to this location at this time. They're taking photographs. They're scanning documents. So there's that component where they're capturing everything. And then for the lendor, then they're able to see kind of the schedule. So as they're dispensing the necessary funds for all of these steps, there's sort of a checks and balances uh, type thing that's happening. And then there's the wrapper around it where Countable is kind of managing all of this and making these uh, these opportunities available to these people that, that want to do the investing. And so uh, that started out as something very, very small. Um, they've just uh, they just finished their Series B uh, funding, and now we're, we've, we've taken that partnership, and now we're sort of uh, helping them transition to, to handling a lot of it internally. It's, it's kind of like the, the baby bird leaving the nest sort of thing. But uh, that's where I really say that we're, we're after – Partnerships, not projects. Anybody could just build them the thing, right? And try to try to just, uh, oh, here's your app. Have fun with it. Let us know if you need some more stuff. But we're really interested in how do you get the most value uh, out of that that creation. And um, there are actually a couple of ways that people end up working with us. And one of them that is very very successful is uh, 
that we, we look at it as sort of like a, a subscription or ongoing uh, agreement. And what that allows us to do is we can kind of match or like scale up or down depending on what the need is, uh, the number of resources uh, that, that we apply to something. So, so an important aspect of that is there's these sort of building blocks that we use to, to apply to a project where we have a, a solutions engineer and a solutions strategist. And those are more uh, kind of broad than just saying, like, we have a developer and we have a project manager um, because we're looking, again, to, to really partner and, and drive value. So our engineers aren't just people turning a handle, right? They, they really understand uh, this kind of, like, holistic view of, of how one solves problems. And they, they're specifically, they have their, their hands into the, the latest and greatest technology to make that happen. And then the strategist is, is more uh, understanding those business needs and, and doing that initial uh, kind of, kind of uh, assessment and then ongoing, um, ongoing like, evaluation of, of value and all of that. And so um, by doing that, it lets us stop focusing on things like What's the statement of work? What is what's going to fall under this thing? And instead, it's this kind of uh, flowing thing because, um, you know, startup. What what my priority is on Tuesday may not be the same priority on Thursday, and that's okay. Like we're cool with that, right? Because we want to continuously be driving the most value you can. You just have a new investor who wants to come in, but they're really interested in this aspect. Great, we'll totally shift gears and focus on that. We don't have to worry so much about the paperwork because we're just part of your team now to, to help you succeed. For the listener that may be going, yeah, I need to engage these guys, how do they get budget, think about what the potential cost of engagement might be? How do you price it to a potential customer? So I sort of mentioned uh, that there are these like three phases. And so there's this initial assessment and prototype phase. And so the, the goal of that is for it to be, you know, much, much smaller than, than a full build engagement, right? It's something that uh, is going to do a lot of discovery. And the goal of coming out of that is for the, the, the client or the, the partner to have something tangible that's valuable to them. So sometimes uh, if it is like a marketing site or it's an app or something like that, we will... We'll, we'll build it out, right, as a prototype. So we'll build out what it's going to look like. We may even, if, the, if there's some sort of complicated uh, calculus that's going on, there may be a visual component. And then we may put together also something that is uh, kind of like a, a naked version of it where you can go through and, and run the calculations and, and kind of prove that it works, right? Um, oftentimes until you, like, get down into some of the algorithms that people have for things, you don't realize that there are problems until you get down to, to just doing the math. And so the goal is to do a lot of discovery, figure out kind of what is it that you actually need? What are you trying to solve? And then deliver something at the end of that phase that they could take, put it on a shelf, come back in three months and say, now I'm ready to execute this. And within that range, you go, given what we talked about, the pricing you can look at is X. That's right. That's right. So, so we kind of we kind of set some goals for for, for what we're going to do and, and about how much time that we think we're going to invest in that and partnering together and kind of what the deliverable might look like and it looks it looks different for all sorts of things but we really custom tailor it to to the the client their budget their their needs that sort of thing and uh, we often find that 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 initial stage is so valuable because what it does is it allows when we move to the actual execution phase that build phase we have an amazing detailed idea of what we're about to build. And that that sort of lend, then estimate um, for that build phase, if that's how we end up engaging, is very accurate then. Shifting gears a little bit. Absolutely. Um, you have people on your team all over the place. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about how you, the tools that you guys use and the structure. For the folks that are going, I want to build a company where my employees are best and brightest from everywhere on the planet. That's exactly right. How do you orchestrate, manage, and communicate 
with all of these folks. Yeah, so I mean, 2017 is a, a heck of a time to be alive. Lots of people are familiar with uh, with Slack, and that's sort of like our day to day communication. Uh, we also use tools like Trello, um, which is is sort of like this very flexible uh, board style thing for, for keeping track of stuff. So we'll break projects down into into that, and then. Uh, we also have this like phase of the morning where we have a, a chunk of time where we do stand-ups, where um, everybody just gets together on uh, on these these uh, chats where we can share screen, we can share video, look at each other face to face, and we just get get down and dirty and like what what's happening today. What what's your yesterday. favorite tool for doing that? So a lot of times we actually use Google Hangouts, okay. um, and because it's uh, we use Google Calendar to sort of sync everybody across all the time zones. Very nice. And uh, as many people are probably familiar, um, Google Calendar has Google Hangouts kind of baked right into it. And so um, that tends to be very good for off-the-cuff screen sharing and, and video chat and all of that. And then uh, when we're interacting with clients, we often use um, something called Uber Conference, um, which uh, the initial the initial uh, meeting might be face-to-face or might even be over video chat, but Uber Conference is quite nice for um, sharing screen and people can dial in. And so it accommodates all sorts of styles of, of how people like to, to interact. Uh, but then the, the thing that I really, I think is so powerful about having a distributed team is it forces you, if you're going to be successful, to be incredibly organized. And, uh, one of the things that I always jokingly say, um, is, is if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. Right. And so it's so easy to, uh, when you're kind of in a, a traditional office environment for let's all get into the boardroom, have a meeting. Great. Let's go do it. Three hours later, nobody remembers um, actually what the what the what things were that we were going to do, and so uh, that documentation component is incredibly important. Uh, and having a distributed team uh, can really kind of force that, and it ends up being where I feel like I'm more connected and have more of an idea of what everyone's doing, what the current status is on everything. Uh, being a distributed team than I ever did being an, an in-person team, um, because you can quite frankly get lazy in person. Uh, and the other component to it is like as you as you sort of alluded to, is that best and brightest. Right, so uh, basically every uh, amazing person I've ever worked with, I've totally stolen um, from from where whatever their their old gig was um, to to come join our team at, at Seesaw. And the members of the team are they structured as contractors? Are they structured as employees of Seesaw? So so we do a little bit of both. So we actually um, the majority of people are employees of Seesaw, and then we have some people that we engage uh, at a contract level um, for various reasons. Some of it is uh, so I, I actually have a, a good friend who uh, is in the the, the He's in the film industry um, and, and does videos and all sorts. And uh, he lives in the UK, and uh, and he's an absolute he's an absolute whiz um, when it comes to um, a very specific type of, of development for around around WordPress. He's just he's the guru, and so uh, we actually we engage with him, uh, you know, for for several hours a, a month or whatever to come in and kind of consult on those things. And so it does kind of give us the flexibility to, to capture those people who are otherwise engaged but, but but brilliant and add a lot of value to the team. And we absolutely consider him part of the, the, the family as well. It's just a different way of working together. For nuts and bolts, I, I, you know, I think about billing and payroll. And you guys are all over the place. Yeah. So, you know, on, on the billing side, is there something that you use or a piece of software that you use for billing? There's a, there's a couple of components to it. So we all capture our time in like a tra- time tracking tool. I'm um, called Harvest, um, okay. which is fantastic at the at the project and individual level, and it sort of uh, allows us to see kind of kind of where we're tracking um, as as far as uh, a lot of time goes or resources and all of that. Uh, and then uh, we use uh, we use Zero for some of the uh, the accounting, um, which is a, another kind of like similar similar tool in the space, and that allows for um, for pretty easy uh, invoicing and billing and all of that stuff as well. So it's 
It's all digital. As you're going through your time tracking <laughs> software, yeah. what was the biggest surprise that you think you recognized when you started looking at your time tracking data? Yeah, so the interesting thing about time tracking data is that um, we sort of had this realization that we needed to that we wanted to break it down and make it more granular. So there's this there's this delicate balance between making it incredibly annoying uh, and absolutely useless, and so you kind of gotta gotta surf between. So so uh, actually, one of the most incredible things that we've done recently is we've we've broken up uh, kind of the the roles um, in a project. Uh, up because because I'll be wearing you know a different hat every day and so um, for me to just put time on a project isn't always incredibly accurate. Sometimes I'm doing a little bit of development. Sometimes I'm working directly with the client, doing uh, doing some like QA or or whatever. And so we've broken that down and and it really kind of surprised us uh, that kind of where we necessarily thought we were spending the time uh, looked a little bit differently. And so that kind of helped us see maybe where some of our pain points were that we didn't that we didn't realize, right? Where people were spending a lot of time in in DevOps or something like that. And mm-hmm. um, we could find a, a way to uh, to mitigate that. There are a lot of tools out there. Heroku is a great um, is a great place to uh, to host like an application or something like that. And it takes a lot of the DevOps headache away. And when you take a, a, um, a one of our uh, solution engineers and you look at their time and you realize they're spending a lot of time on DevOps, it's really easy to do the math and see that like... And for those that don't know, <laughs> DevOps. DevOps. <laughs> Development operations. So uh, if you imagine you built a thing, uh, the thing that it sits on to to make it work, to make it to make it spin, that that sort of uh, that that platform, which can have to scale up and down, right? If you have tons of users uh, uh, interacting with it, it's very kind of complicated um, hosting that might be all over the the country or the world or whatever to meet all those needs. And uh, there are tools out there that that sort of make that kind of automatic, expensive. Um, but when you actually start looking at the time, how people are spending their times um, facilitating those needs, doesn't look so expensive anymore. Uh, and that's been something that's been really powerful for us and allowed us to to really focus on again delivering value with the, the way that we're spending our time. You know, with with that insight, what was the the behavioral change other than changing DevOps hosting? Yeah, so the behavioral change is just really like we have this culture now of like uh, where are the places that that we feel like we're 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 doing the same thing over and over again, or we're, or spinning our wheels. How do we take um, kind of how do we take uh, the things that feel like handle turning and automate them? And so part of that is like investing time in building our own internal libraries. So when you come along and, and you have a project that you'd like to engage in, we're like sitting there with these Lego blocks that are just like ready to assemble. And then we can focus on like that top layer, which is the part that like the hard part, right? The really interesting part of solving your problem. All of the infrastructure or whatever, it's kind of done already. Um, and we've even done that with virtual reality. So um, we, ha- we have had several internal uh, virtual reality projects because... It's incredibly fun, and why not? Uh, but it's actually uh, allowed us to, to really deliver a lot of value to the client because we, we have all the thing, the unknowns uh, kind of sorted out. Um, we have kind of like a boilerplate project now that we've kind of built that has the capability to be built to something like the, um, the HTC Vive, which has like the controllers, and it's kind of room scale, and you can walk around and pick stuff up and throw it and shoot guns and all sorts of things, right? Um, to the... The more like cardboard view, um, or or like the 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 Google Daydream, um, which is which runs on a phone, and so uh, because we have this kind of boilerplate project, if you were to come to me and say like, ah, I really I'm thinking about doing this virtual reality experience, how can we engage in like this minimal level for me to kind of try it out? Um, we already have the platform uh, that has all of the the hard cruddy parts like figured out, and we can just really focus on that top layer of delivering the experience uh, and not have to spin uh, spin our wheels, burning a lot of time. Uh, getting all the infrastructure things kind of set up. 
When you engage clients and after you've worked with them for a while, what's the biggest misconception that your clients have about what you guys do? Yeah, I think the, the biggest misconception is like sometimes when we when we first engage with someone, they're coming at it with this idea that these are the guys that are going to like build the thing, right? And after they build the thing, uh, that's going to be it. One and done. One and done. Who could who could imagine that a, that a, a piece of software designed to, to solve a very complex problem might uh, might be a little more involved. Um, but uh, what we really find often is people are quite surprised at how uh, at how good we are kind of at, at engaging at that strategy problem solving level. And so it may start out with they think we got this. We know exactly what our problem is. We need you to build this thing. And by the time we kind of reach the end of that engagement, now they're saying we were thinking about X. Like how could you maybe like help us with that or what would you suggest? And we end up oftentimes just going into this, this ongoing kind of support where we're just, we're again, focusing on partnerships, not projects. We are kind of an extension of their team at, at a level of engagement that makes sense to them budget-wise, um, but just lets them like know that we're just there, right? That they can pick up the phone and say like, we're struggling with this or we're going to open this new location and we want to know like, should we be doing an AdWords campaign? Should we be uh, adding it to the website now or... Uh, or anything like that, and so I think the the misconception oftentimes is that um, it's going to be this very like, kind of discreet engagement, and people often find that even even the ones that do initially approach it like a partnership, they don't realize like actually how valuable it is to to connect at such an intimate level. We're going to shift gears massively now. Oh, I think I know what's coming up. Um, you have a, a passion. Yeah. For parkour. That's right. That's right. So I've been training uh, parkour for about. 10 years now. Um, this kind of extends all the way back to that initial, uh, the initial uh, part of the story, being in college and, uh, and realizing that engineering wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly um, what, I was, what I was after. We talked about parkour, where it came from. Yeah. Before you go into what you did, <laughs> let's go into the origins of parkour. Yeah, so, so the, the long story short about that is uh, there was a, a, a French-occupied island, right, volcanic island, and it was comprised of these uh, these original inhabitants, and then these 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 French people who had sort of colonized it, right. So the mountain erupts one day, and there's a soldier there who'd been studying uh, the the indigenous people and realizing like how naturally they moved and how beautiful it was. And when this volcano erupted, all of the natives made it to the shore just fine. Uh, the French people that were there were all sort of like, you can imagine like zombies trying to run away from, from this like lava flow. And, uh, and there was massive casualty because of it. And so it inspired him uh, to create this thing called Parcours de Combattants, which means the path of the warrior. And it eventually became part of the, the French special forces training. And it was all about this kind of efficient uh, movement. So you fast forward a little bit. Uh, there was a, a kid in an orphanage on a military base who learned this. He got out in the woods in the middle of the night and trained. He grew up, became a very famous firefighter uh, in Paris. He had a son, uh, David Bell is his name, and him and his friends uh, shortened it and they called it parkour. And uh, they made it into a game that they would play. And uh, it sort of caught on. Uh, there's this newfangled thing called YouTube. And, uh, and YouTube kind of was the explosion and birth of that and, and how I initially uh, found out about it as well. How do you see parkour relating to what you do in business? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, 
there's kind of like, there's, there's sort of two components to it. So one is that it is very much like a martial art insofar as it, it requires a tremendous amount of discipline and sort of the ability to abstract oneself from the situation, right? Uh, which which is enormously important in, in business entrepreneurship is being able to, to suppress kind of those emotions and be able to look at something very plainly uh, and, and have the discipline to, to execute. Um, where that kind of where that kind of extends even further is uh, parkour has this very problem solving kind of component to it, which I said uh, earlier on is that problem solving is just this the thing that I can't get enough of, uh, and, and parkour is very much that. So you look at this landscape that might uh, that might have some rails and some walls and everything, and you're connecting the dots, right? You're you're creating this path to whatever your destination is, and uh, and that is that is like a, a kind of a huge parallel in, in the other stuff I do. And then there's this other component, which is, uh, so I taught parkour for, for many years. And uh, the first thing we teach is how to fall. Um, because you've got to fall. A lot, a lot of large numbers. You're going to jump to a rail. Um, you're not going to hit it every single time. And so uh, by knowing how to fall, you sort of have this like ingrained kind of backup plan, right? Of, of how you're going to adapt to the, the unknown. So you have a plan and when it doesn't go according to plan, uh, you quickly adapt to the situation. And that obviously, uh, as, as you might be able to imagine, has tremendous parallel uh, in what I do now. I think about, I, there's a couple of videos <laughs> from your LinkedIn That's right. site. And uh, one, you're stairs and rails and walls. And the other one, you're in a supermarket. That's right. Jumping over stuff. <laughs> Side flipping over <laughs> shopping carts and all sorts, yeah. Yes, and loading up on... Pizza rolls. Yeah, pizza yeah. rolls. I'm going like, there's yeah. a habit that's going yeah. astray. Don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't judge me on that one. I wouldn't eat the pizza rolls, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so, so that, that actually video was one that was really important to us from a... Uh, so there's always like kind of a play aspect, but there's actually a philosophical aspect to that as well, um, which is when we first started training, there's this, this mental toughness that's required to do a complex move. And uh, the level of mastery that you have over that move is something that is in constant flux that you're trying to, you're trying to lock down. And the joke that we used to call is, is when you have your move, uh, your complex move at its most uh, controlled state, we call it grocery store. Because after we get done training, we'd often go to the grocery store to get food because we're quite hungry or whatever. And the grocery store is the worst place to have to do uh, a trick like that if you imagine doing a flip or something because it's a hard surface, sometimes slippery, it's often cold, and you're wearing street clothes. And so after training, if you could go to the grocery store and throw that move, you had it on lockdown. That was the thing. And so uh, we had this idea a long time ago that we wanted to create a, a grocery store video. So we went to the supermarket, one of the 24-hour ones, at like 2 o'clock in the morning uh, hit a camera under a coat in the shopping cart, and then and then walk, walked around and, and shot this video. <laughs> I can imagine the person stocking the shelves late at night, going, "They didn't just jump over the cooler." Yeah, they really like didn't. The, the person buffing the floor, and they're like, ah, "I don't get paid enough to worry about this." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking into the future for seesaw, yeah, and what have you got on the horizon that you're excited about that you're going to be tackling here soon? Yeah, so so we're really, really excited to continue to kind of build these partnerships and start to offer uh, solutions in these in these emerging technologies. So you know we've we've gotten our uh, our hands dirty with chatbots, um, some artificial intelligence, virtual reality, which we mentioned. Um, the very exciting space is that all of this uh, all of this stuff is starting to to sort of hit that consumer level now, and we're starting to see an increased demand, especially when we partner with with like marketing agencies, right? Who who have the ideas but don't necessarily have the, the technical chops to to execute. And uh, as we're continuing to, to forge more of those partnerships, uh, you know, we're, we're very 
excited to continue to, to kind of expand and deliver in that space. You've been an entrepreneur since the engineering department, I guess, did measure up. Yeah. What influences early on do you think uh, contributed to your entrepreneurial bent? Yeah, so so my uh, my father was a small business owner, and so just really instilled um, that into me. And so my summers, my after school was spent at the business, and and sort of with uh, all of these resources, it was a, it was a printing business um, okay. actually. And so so I had access to computers, to graphic arts equipment, to uh, paper cardboard string, everything, right? And so uh, so sort of my thing was just. You have this time. You have all these resources. You have literally nothing to do, right? Because the internet isn't even like a, a, a huge thing, right? As as I'm a kid, so uh, it's it's me making like suits of armor out of like cardboard and stuff, and then just watching my dad like run this business and and understand uh, this aspect of, of of problem solving and delivering value and all of this, and just being kind of steeped in that with all of these resources. So I'd end up like kind of like miming that and and making stuff like making up little businesses and things right like uh, making up like the little uh shops and and selling things and playing with like my sister and stuff and and having access to the tools uh is just which is huge i mean coming out of middle school knowing how to use photoshop um was kind of powerful um for just doing anything i wanted to do business you know and for a lot of us we'll read books of one kind or another yeah what's your recent favorite book that you've read how to create a mind and so, so I've really started uh, in, in the recent past, gotten into reading uh, things about how, how, how do people make decisions, right? Because being in the space of, of helping people um, deliver with these businesses and get customers in the door, it's getting people to do something that you want them to do. That's a, that is in essence what marketing is. It's, what, it's what's running a successful business is, is, is being compelling enough that someone will do what you want them to do. And so uh, as I understand the human mind better and how we make decisions and how we're influenced, that helps me, one, help remove my own sort of bias towards things, um, but also just better understand like the mind of the customer, be able to, to relate in a better way. And How to Create a Mind is a really interesting uh, book. It sort of it sort of goes beyond that um, into the artificial intelligence realm. And it's it's looking at this pattern recognizing theory of the mind. Uh, and the idea is that at the most basic components, uh, our brain is made of these, these pattern recognizing cells. And so the way that that manifests itself is really interesting and the implications that it has for, for how you look at the populace in aggregate, but also in, in the individual uh, and, and get them to do what, you, what you'd like. Social engineering, for sure. That's right. Best piece of advice, business or otherwise, you think you ever got? Best piece of advice? No one cares about your thing. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yes. So, so that's the thing is that you meet all these people uh, all the time and uh, they sort of have this idea um, where they're very infatuated with their own idea. And I think the best piece of advice was, uh, was you know, I was, I was telling someone, um, you know, like, oh, like our thing's going to be so huge. You know, I was sort of um, just barely into the kind of the startup thing. And uh, you know, I think it maybe was like my dad. He's like, look, no one cares about your thing. Um, and, he, and he was right. I cared about my thing a lot. And I could imagine that other people did. And that's sort of that bias that I was talking about a moment ago that you really have to be able to detach yourself from your own business. And if that means killing an idea very early, that's really important, that, that sort of fail fast mentality. But keeping this idea that like, it is your job to make someone care. It is not their like obligation or natural state. As you're talking about, no one cares about your thing. And you're working with these various businesses trying to identify the pain point of mm -hmm. their potential customer. 
What process do you go through to identify that pain point? Yeah, so so it's really interesting. So being being kind of that outsider at the in the initial stage is actually incredibly valuable because you can look at someone and they can uh, having them explain how they think like a customer comes to their business or how they think someone uses whatever their thing is, and then and then that kind of morphing into what their what their pain point is, what their daily frustration is, and you start to uh, if you have a lot of experience in this stuff starts to smell sometimes, right? When someone says, oh. People come to our website, and that's how they find like this thing. And so, um, what's really what's really powerful is that with with some of these analytics, especially in in kind of this uh, digital interaction that happens in a lot of stuff, you can actually set up the analytics, set up the the telemetry that that really drives down into proving if that's true. And a lot of times, uh, an initial engagement will start with a paradigm shift of the way you think people are doing stuff in the way that they're doing it. And we find ways to prove that. And that, that can be huge, uh, incredibly valuable to know what you don't know. Mark Twain did something about that. Wasn't that true? It said, it's not what you know that'll hurt you. It's what, what you know that's not necessarily true that'll get you something along that's those right. lines. That's right. Well, you know, it, it's, it's been interesting. And, and as we were chatting before, um, you have um, a new trainee in the parkour world that you're training at home. That's right, that's right. I have a, a two-year-old daughter uh, who, uh, who at every opportunity I'm throwing up in the air and turning upside down and we have, <laughs> we have a pull-up bar in the kitchen and she's she's seeing me do pull-ups and she's like, oh, oh, Evie, Evie try, Evie try. So I, I hold her up there and give her the little assist and she's, she's just a little monkey and we're gonna we're gonna keep that going as much as we can. Junior parkour. That's right. Perfect. That's right. Now, in, in up and down the front range, is mm-hmm. there an active parkour community? Yeah, so so it's really interesting. So there's a there's a group of guys here um, called Boundless Parkour, and uh, they meet together in a gymnastics gym during the winter um, when it's much much more difficult to train outside. And they train outside all around kind of kind of uh, Colorado Springs here, uh, and it's it, it's it's great because. Um, these guys I've been able to connect with recently, and they're um, they're a bit younger than I am, uh, just kind of out of high school and stuff. And and having this common denominator of of this love for for movement and pushing one's mind uh, is just amazing because you kind of connect through all these these different uh, parts of life. And then as you go up, kind of uh, e- even north of here, it's it's obviously quite large in in Denver as well. There's a, a group out there, uh, Apex, uh, that has some gyms and. Just absolutely phenomenal training. Even if you want to go even further, further west, Boulder as well. Colorado is actually like a very, uh, a very strong uh, part of the parkour community. Well, Matthew, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and sharing what you guys do and your approach to business. So thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. This was a, a pleasure. You bet.